I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 19, 527 to 532, Part 3, The Kindling. In the last two and a half episodes, we've been out on the frontiers, as the new emperor Justinian tried to extricate himself from a costly war with Persia. This week, we return to domestic matters and explore what Justinian achieved during his first five years in power. Of course, as we know, the year 527 wasn't exactly Justinian's first year in power. Although he only became Caesar and then Augustus in the year that his uncle died, he had clearly wielded considerable influence during Justin's nine-year reign. It was the kind of imperial apprenticeship which very few men enjoyed. During this time, Justinian took a keen interest in the architecture of the capital. We have evidence of half a dozen churches which were restored or refurbished during that time, several of them originally founded by Constantine to honour local martyrs. Only days after his coronation, Justinian began the construction of a church of his own, which still stands today. The small church of St. Sergius and Bacchus honours two more martyrs, they were Roman centurions, who were dear to the new emperor's heart. These building projects give us an insight into the three guiding principles which motivated Justinian's first five years on the throne. As we saw in episode 15, the new emperor was a deeply committed Christian, who saw it as his duty to not only defend the faith, but to regulate and unify it. He took his inheritance of the Roman Empire equally seriously and wanted to restore its former glory. With those beliefs in mind, the refurbishment of ancient churches can be seen as an act of both piety and duty. What better way to signal the Roman Empire's strength and glory than by restoring its great churches? Of course, building is something that emperors had always been keen on, because it was a tangible achievement, which would remind those who saw it of who was in charge, while surviving on to educate future generations. Justinian's constant building projects must also be seen in this context. 
Anastasius may have had no imperial pedigree to speak of, but he was chosen by the Empress. Justin had been chosen essentially by the palace guards, and Justinian was therefore merely the nephew of a usurper in the eyes of some. With buildings gleaming anew in the capital, Justinian hoped to say, here is a man worthy of God, worthy of Rome, and worthy to be your emperor. Over the next few years, Justinian would commission a slew of new building projects, some we already saw out on the frontiers. While back in the capital, he helped complete new baths, orphanages, hospitals, and several new public amenities for the suburb of Sikai, just across the Golden Horn. The population of the empire had been growing for a while now, and Justinian aimed to turn Sikai into an independent city, which he could then rename Justinianopolis. The plans wouldn't come to fruition in the end, but the emperor's desire for legitimacy and immortality would lead him to name at least two dozen new settlements after himself during his time on the throne. The other interesting note about the expansion of Sikai is that the last imperially sponsored theatre was built there during this period. The ever-Christianizing population would soon have no interest in the plays of antiquity. Next, Justinian turned his attention to the law. As you may recall from the history of Rome, under Theodosius II, all the laws issued since the time of Constantine had been gathered together and published in 438. With the empire coming under attack from without and within, the law code had been an attempt to bring order to the chaos. Roman law was recognised by barbarians and Byzantines alike as representing something special, something that could legitimise rulers and regulate a kingdom. Since Theodosius's code had been issued, both the Visigothic and Burgundian courts had ordered their own compilations of Roman law to help bind their power to their new subjects. Legitimacy was something Justinian needed, and in early 528, he announced to the Senate his intention of compiling a new law code. Of course, expediency wasn't the emperor's only motivation. The Theodosian Code had been desperately needed. Century after century of imperial decree and legal decision had accumulated, making lawsuits ever more complicated and expensive. The Theodosian Code simply gathered all these rulings together into one place. No attempt had been made to remove obsolete laws or question laws which contradicted one another. And, of course, 90 years had now passed since the code had been published, and so a collection of new laws and edicts had been issued in the meantime. Justinian appointed a commission of ten expert jurists to create a new code. Their instructions were to collect together and revise every imperial constitution they could find, from the time of Hadrian up to the present. Law codes issued by Diocletian, as well as Theodosius, were included, along with all the edicts of all the Western and Eastern emperors. The commission arranged the new law code according to subject matter, and then into chronological order. Not only were contradictory or obsolete laws removed, but words were altered, 
omitted or added for the sake of clarity. The Commission worked feverishly for just over 13 months, a terrific speed, so that on the 8th of April, 529, the Emperor could announce the publication of the first comprehensive legal code in the Empire's history, the Code of Justinian. The Emperor was clear that every text included in the code would obtain the force of a general constitution. Justinian was clearly delighted with the code and the prestige it would lend his name. He announced that those things which seemed to many former emperors to require correction, but which none of them ventured to carry into effect, we have decided to accomplish at the present time with the assistance of Almighty God. The official aim of the code was to diminish the length and complexity of lawsuits for the public benefit, and official copies of the code were sent out to all the provinces. An important addition to the existing laws were the canons of the four great ecumenical councils, which Justinian now declared would have the same validity as imperial laws. In this area of religious behaviour, Justinian now began to actively legislate himself. The first two years of his reign saw sweeping measures taken against anyone rejecting orthodox Christian belief. Lapsed Christians were to be put to death. Those making sacrifices were to be put to death. The unbaptized were to be baptized or they would lose their civil rights. Pagans were barred from imperial service. Along with their CV, new applicants would need three witnesses to vouch for their religious practice. Justinian also targeted heretics. In the confusing world of early Christianity, heresy was a term thrown around regularly as various sects began to differentiate themselves. But in Justinian's laws, the term heretic seems to take on its familiar medieval conception as both religious dissenter and social menace, or even political traitor. The heretics who were being targeted included homosexuals, pagans, Samaritans, and Manichaeans. Jews were included as heretics too, but didn't lose their civil rights, although Justinian did dictate which translations of their own scriptures they should be allowed to read aloud. Local enforcement of these laws undoubtedly varied, as they always had done under Roman rule. However, in 529, Justinian seems to have demanded a clampdown and strict enforcement of his new laws. A sort of inquisition began in Constantinople to set an example. Some prominent pederasts were castrated, a few practicing pagans were executed, and others were dismissed from public posts. This reached right up to senior ministers, including the quaestor Proclus. Pagans were also banned from teaching, and to underline this point, Justinian shut down the famous academy in Athens, confiscating its endowment. The Samaritans of Palestine were also harassed and had their temples destroyed, which led to a major uprising, which had to be bloodily suppressed with the help of the Ghassanids. Procopius, being from the region, was particularly upset at this and records that valuable farms were still lying abandoned two years later.
estimates suggest that around 100,000 people had either been killed, enslaved, or had fled the area. Christian persecution of minorities had been going on since the time of Constantine, and earlier emperors had certainly tightened up rules which encouraged the promotion of the faith. However, Justinian took the desire for religious unity more seriously than his predecessors had done. He was determined to close all the roads which lead to error, and to place religion on the firm foundations of a single faith. By removing the right of pagans to teach, and indeed equating pagan with heretic, Justinian was closing the door on independent, secular learning. Future generations would only learn about the classical past from a Christian perspective. The year of 529 seems to have been a particularly paranoid one for the new regime. Historian James Evans describes it as a kind of McCarthyist witch hunt as the emperor looked to remove those surrounding him who had lingering pagan habits. However, despite these upheavals, Justinian did not spend every year of his reign involved in bloody purges. For a start, the Monophysites were conspicuously spared from being labelled as heretics and it seems clear from the dubious moral conduct of some of Justinian's closest advisers that as long as citizens professed orthodox belief in public, their private affairs could continue unscrutinized. One bishop in Palestine wrote to the local governor, despairing of how to cope with the sheer number of people seeking baptism around Easter time in 529. Many officials and even teachers seem to have continued their lives much as they had done before, while giving nominal support to Christianity. Seven of the philosophers who had worked at the Athens Academy emigrated to Persia after Khusro seized on the chance for a public relations coup. Keen to emphasise his own greatness and tolerance, the King of Kings welcomed them with open arms, but they didn't stay long. Homesick and perhaps finding that Zoroastrian feathers were as easily ruffled as Christian ones, the philosophers returned to the empire when the eternal peace was signed in 532. Khusro actually had a clause inserted into the treaty to protect the returning teachers from persecution, which Justinian honoured. As I said before, local enforcement of these measures remained lax. The Athens philosophers continued to write, and we still have records of pagans teaching in Alexandria as late as the early 600s. However, Justinian was certainly intensifying a trend toward homogeneity in religious practice, and the only way to advance your career was to follow suit. In his secret history, Procopius provides us with the opinion of the educated agnostic elite when he says of Justinian, Anxious to unite all men in the same opinion about Christ, he destroyed dissidents indiscriminately, and that under the pretext of piety, for he did not think that the slaying of men was murder unless they happened to share his own religious opinions. In a sentence that sounds startlingly modern, Procopius adds the following, I consider it a sort of insane folly, to investigate the nature of God. Man cannot accurately apprehend the constitution of man 
how much less that of the deity. That attitude, though, was becoming rarer. Justinian was a man of great intelligence, and for him, and the vast majority of the Byzantines, debating the nature of God was the intellectual topic of the day. Justinian's Christian concern for his subjects did extend to areas that we would thoroughly approve of. Rapists were punished more severely, and laws were enacted to try and stop the trafficking of women into prostitution. Here, Theodora's influence can be felt, as the city's pimps and procurers were forced out, and a convent built where those fleeing the empress's former profession could take refuge. Justinian also began to prepare the ground for a reconciliation with the Monophysites. He began to lift some of the restrictions on the clergy in the East, and allowed Theodora to begin a dialogue with some of the leading men. Her Monophysite beliefs were well known, and it seems that the imperial couple used their unusual alliance to try and secure religious unity. Justinian could still present himself to the Pope and those in the West as the defender of orthodoxy, while Theodora could reassure the Monophysite communities that they had a friend at court. Those who saw through these manoeuvres were scornful, though. In 531, the zealously orthodox Saint Sabas led a group of monks to the capital and refused the Empress's request for prayers that she might conceive a son. Saint Sabas reasoned that given her monophysite leanings, the child would turn out to be a monster. As he had done with his military commands, Justinian appointed new men to serve in the most important administrative posts in the capital. As with Belisarius and Sittas, Justinian favoured those he saw firsthand, and who would owe their loyalty to him. Being of humble origin, Justinian also favoured men of ability, regardless of their background. The commission which had produced the law code was chaired by a man known as John the Cappadocian. A native of Caesarea in Cappadocia, he began working in the palace as a clerk in the office of the Master of Soldiers and came to Justinian's attention during the time when he held that office. He was not highly educated, but like Justinian had a strong work ethic, lots of energy, and always found a solution to a problem. By the time he became chairman of the law commission, Procopius, who did not like him, conceded that he was a man of the greatest daring and the cleverest man of his day. Justinian made John Praetorian Prefect of the East in 531, and he was tasked with getting a hold of the finances of the state. Despite the large pile of gold left to Justin by Anastasius, the expenses were racking up. The war with Persia was dragging on, demanding fresh payments to allies like the Ghassanids, while new building projects are always expensive, and these included the restoration of Antioch after the devastating earthquake of 526. John set about his task with ruthless efficiency. He instituted stringent economies in the provisioning of the army, launched a determined campaign against corruption, and introduced new taxes. We have records of 26 of them which hit the rich proportionally more than the poor. Noble families who had enjoyed their loopholes suddenly found them tightened. 
and men caught bribing tax collectors were harshly fined. Imperial officials who were caught embezzling were dismissed, while a certain amount of downsizing added to the newly unemployed. The benefits of the traditional elite were being curtailed as power was centralised, and many of the discontented headed for the capital, where John became a monster in the popular imagination. Not all the stories about him were lies, though. He was clearly a bully, and was regularly accused of harassing or even torturing those he suspected were hiding wealth from the state. He became very wealthy through personal corruption, although according to Procopius, he would not alter state policy for any amount. His popularity was not helped, though, by his well-earned reputation for debauchery and gluttony. The abstentious and milder Justinian clearly tolerated all of John's less savoury behaviour because of his invaluable skills as an administrator. John's outspoken independence and lack of conservative establishment views doubtless endeared him to an emperor whose rapid reforms were looking distinctly radical to many. Another man who served on the Law Commission was the jurist Tribonian. We believe that he was from Pamphylia in Anatolia, and he was certainly educated at one of the great law schools. He was a first-class lawyer and caught the eye of Justinian for his outstanding abilities. After serving on the Law Commission, he was made quaestor, the emperor's senior legal minister who would draft imperial legislation. To understand the importance of this position, you need to consider that the quaestor would have to spend a lot of time with the emperor so that he could interpret and express the sovereign's ideas in law. Tribonian was John the Cappadocian's opposite in two important ways. First was that he was charming, erudite, and learned, so unlike John, wasn't going to embarrass anyone at dinner. Less admirably, though, Tribonian was corrupt to an extent that made a mockery of his office. Again, the stories may be exaggerated, but Tribonian was said to have accepted bribes to alter the law, and became stinking rich as a result. Between 530 and 531, the law on inheritance was said to have changed roughly every two weeks. This was an outrage amongst the senatorial families, who were, presumably, having to outbid one another. Finally, we should note the behaviour of the new imperial couple. Conscious of their lowly births and the need to be seen as legitimate rulers, Justinian and Theodora enforced court etiquette strictly. Earlier emperors had required senators and other patricians to merely genuflect in their presence or asked some to kiss the robe of the emperor, but the empress had received no salute. Now all visitors were asked to prostrate themselves before the royal couple, as men did at the court of the Sassanids. Procopius claims that Theodora used her position to humiliate members of the elite who she took a dislike to. Around the palace, officials began to refer to the emperor and empress as my lord and my lady, in the deferential manner familiar to us from the courts of kings. By Christmas of 531, Justinian had achieved a huge amount. From Pannonia to Persia and the Crimea to Ethiopia, Christian kings were in alliance with the empire. 
The Persians had been beaten back and then bought off. New churches and other buildings rose across the continent. New laws governed the courtrooms, and heretics and pagans had been further squeezed. The administration had been streamlined and organized, and all of this was just the beginning. Justinian had much grander plans in mind. The agitation in Africa and Italy between the Aryan rulers of former Roman people had not escaped the emperor's attention. His new law code and the restoration of relations with the papacy were potentially paving the way for a restoration of imperial rule. Despite his dismissal from the east, Belisarius was back in the capital, and Justinian had plans for where to send him next. However, the emperor was not loved. His achievements were great, but they had come at a price. To his subjects, those first five years had seen constant warfare, bloody rebellion, natural disasters, stringent taxes, and layoffs. In the capital, the atmosphere was particularly poisonous. Nothing rankles quite as badly as injustice. To those whose privileges had been taken away, or who had lost a lawsuit that they should have won, the new regime was the source of their hatred. To the aristocracy of Constantinople, which, remember, contained the descendants of Anastasius and Theodosius, the low-born imperial couple were a particular disgrace. With all that kindling being amassed, all it would take was a well-thrown match to set it alight. It's a good thing, of course, that Justinian was on such good terms with the deems. I mean, when you think about how the crowds of unruly young men hanging around the streets of Constantinople had nearly overthrown Zeno, or torn down Anastasius's statues, or nearly forced him to abdicate, well, what's that you say? Justinian isn't popular with the deems? You mean the green faction still hate him for the years he spent looking the other way while the blues terrorized them? And the blues now hate him for the last few years where he began to remove their privileges and punish them equally with the greens? Oh dear. We'll leave Constantinople on New Year's Day 532. And in two weeks' time, everything, and I mean everything, goes up in flames. Thank you so much for listening and for your feedback and support on iTunes, at Facebook, and at the History of Byzantium. .wordpress.com Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you chiching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 